electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. So long, New York. Amazon has pulled out of its commitment to build a massive campus and bring 25,000 to 40,000 high-paying jobs to Long Island City in Queens. And on Valentine's Day, it's like roses are red, violets are blue, you're not getting my HQ2, love Jeff. So what went wrong? Why the breakup? Well, first of all, some critics were mad that New York offered $3 billion in tax incentives to lure Amazon in the first place. Most businesses just come here because they want to be in New York and pay the taxes. Second, you've got the union issues. Amazon flat out said, we're not going to want our employees to unionize. But still, it wasn't as if the working class in Queens was rising up in protest against the Amazon deal. A poll by the Siena College Research Institute found 56% of New Yorkers wanted it. Democrats and independents more than Republicans. Blacks and Latinos favored the deal more than any other group by 70% plus. So what gives and what does it mean for future deals between billionaire run corporations and cities? Welcome to Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. I am John Fort from CNBC. Joining me today, Anand Giridardas, author of Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World, and in a little bit, CNBC Wealth Editor Robert Frank will join us as well. Anand, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So you wrote extensively uh, about this, and themes around it have been a focus of yours for a while. What do you think is the important takeaway from what's happening today? Today was a victory in my mind for American democracy over helipad plutocracy. Why? The reality is there are 8 million people in this city who are happy to be here without getting a welfare check as from the government simply for their presence to open a business here, do their jobs here. Jeff Bezos wanted special treatment. He wanted kind of the bottle service version <laughs> of public policy, which is you know, just being here, having access to this city, this talent, this extraordinary place that we're seeing behind us wasn't enough for him. He wanted billions of dollars in subsidies. The richest man in the world, at the very moment when he was trying to convince us that he is a philanthropist, he's solving these social problems. And the union thing that you mentioned mm -hmm. is really telling because it, because it sort of reveals the deeper side of this. It's a balance of power thing, right? This is a person who has built a business based on what I call pee-in-a-bottle capitalism. There's these reports, a lot of his workers, the don't pee get in enough bottles, breaks. don't get enough breaks, the, the productivity quotas right. are such. You should see the DMs that I've gotten from Amazon workers who feel so scared to go anywhere and, and, and share the experience of it publicly. It takes little screenshots when they sneak in a phone. The reality of what it's like to work there. There have been books about it, a great book yes. called No Man Land, about it. This guy has built an entire company, an enterprise, on you know, extraordinary market power and possibly monopoly, and on treating workers in, in this kind of miserly way, has tried to rebrand himself as a philanthropist, giving a very small fraction, uh, a smaller fraction than most Americans, I think, of his wealth away, um, and then wanted to come to this city, the greatest city in the world, in my view, and get a special, become kind of the, the great welfare king of New York. He wanted a deal. 
Important to point out, though, these jobs, at least as they were promised on paper, were not those distribution center jobs where you pee in a bottle. Uh, if New York wanted to be selfish about it, they could say, no, these are, it's supposed to be $150,000 salary on average in order for them to get that full break. Um, and, and also, isn't it sort of the state of the world? This deal was better than that Wisconsin Foxconn deal, right? There's the argument to be made that the revenue that New York would have gotten for services would outweigh the payment uh, in terms of tax incentives. Why is that wrong? Hold on a sec. I, I've been to that area where where uh, they were gonna they were gonna build Long Island City in Queens. Right. Uh-huh. There's a lot of other businesses there. None of them were gonna get that kind of incentive, no matter what jobs they create. Right. So what is their sin? What sin did they commit to not not negotiating that? well enough, or not bringing twenty five, or offering to bring twenty five thousand jobs at once? There's, there's a lot more than 25,000 jobs there in aggregate. Right, but at once. I mean, so their arguably sin, they were their in good sin negotiating position. was they got there earlier. Yeah. They committed to this community earlier. Maybe they've been here 50 years. Their sin was maybe operating a business 50 years in this community instead of just coming in now. Their sin was maybe not being a monopoly with such market power that they can dictate terms. Um, and I don't think those are sins. And I think the reality is we are living, I believe, uh, at the end of an era defined by plutocrats' fantasies and whims falsely rebranded as our best interests. Mm. And I think what's coming apart in this deal, it's not about the technicalities of whether this amount of tax break is justified by this amount of salary. It's not about the math. It's about the morality of a form of capitalism in which the richest man in the world was going to get handouts from a city that can't afford to keep its subways in order, they can't afford to fix its roads. As they can't afford to desegregate its schools. Yeah, I, I the question is, that. why does he get a break first? Why do we pay him first? Uh, and, and the answer seems to be because he's got a lot of money. I think you've written something to the effect of that democracy is going to have to be the force that counters this advantage that the super rich seem to have negotiating position-wise in society right now. The part about this that troubles me is that democracy doesn't seem to have been what was at play here exactly, because the polling numbers at least suggest New Yorkers wanted this deal. Black and brown New Yorkers wanted this deal more. It seems to be something else at play. If I were Amazon and I really wanted to be here, I could have looked at these numbers and said, you know what, I can win this fight. I can go to the people and say, here's what we're gonna do, we're gonna bring some jobs, convince these representatives who are supposed to represent you to let us have our way. But instead, they decided to walk away. Why? Democracy is not everybody acting on today's poll numbers, right? Democracy is we elect, well, shouldn't be. We elect leaders, <laughs> right. and then they make decisions in the best interest of their people. On an issue like this, um, as on any issue of this kind, it takes a long time for the general public to focus on an issue like this, learn all the facts. I would bet the number of New Yorkers who've actually studied the term sheet of that deal is very small. That's why you elect leaders. It's their job to do this. And the reality is a lot of the leaders in the city, well, a bunch of leaders supported this and embraced it. But then there were, you started to have a bunch of leaders questioning it. And one of the guys who was going to be responsible for potentially implementing this was a skeptic. You obviously had uh, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who was a very vocal and intelligent critic of it. Um, and I think my guess is what they saw was something deeper than poll numbers, actually correctly, that they saw that the leadership of this city and this state was not going to just lie down and let the richest man in the world 
have its way with this extraordinary city so that, I'm frankly, a- is self-confident enough not to need to bribe people to want to be here. And that's, I wonder if the confidence is well-placed. What's the alternative? Um, the, the city needs tax revenue, needs to fix its subways. There are all sorts of efficiency issues. We've read the stories in the New York Times about how money is being wasted that should be going toward improvements, upgrades in the subways. What's the alternative if you can't lure an Amazon, who ostensibly wants to be here at some level, to bring in that revenue? Uh, How do you close the deficits? What are these politicians who rejected this deal going to offer to the people who at least for now wanted it uh, that's going to lead to a better outcome for them? First of all, I think this issue of companies forcing races to the bottom among among cities and states and getting these kind of sweet deals is a problem that can only be solved collectively, right? So I would would favor some kind of federal solution um, to this problem of cities outbidding each other to kind of sell the public good to private companies. Mm. Um, I just don't think any individual city has the leverage to fight a race to the bottom. That's sort of the dynamical race to the bottom. Um, In terms of what, you know, if, if if you were to say $3 billion we would have spent on Amazon in this city, I think there are a lot of things that could be done with $3 billion in this city that would make it a more attractive place for, first of all, just people to live and work and have dignity and be better for business. I think if we put $3 billion into schools and investments in, in having better education for all New Yorkers, not just white New Yorkers in good neighborhoods, um, I think that would actually probably be good for business also. I don't think that's the, the reason to do it, right. but there's a lot of ways to spend $3 billion that would actually give everybody a fair shot and not create bottle service public policy for the world's richest man. But it would have to be $3 billion that the city doesn't have yet as opposed to $3 billion that it was getting in, at least in, in, uh, on paper from Amazon. Let us bring in Robert Frank. Once again, this is Fort Knox. Rich ideas, powerful people. We are talking about Amazon pulling back, saying no thanks to its deal to bring a new facility. They call it HQ2, but they've got one headquarters, so let's be honest about this. Uh, a new large campus to New York City, to Long Island City in Queens. Robert Frank, uh, you study wealth and wealth impacts and, frankly, the trends among super rich people. What was your reaction when you saw this? There were rumors that this was going to happen, but it all seemed kind of sudden to me. Yeah, it was not surprising me. It was sort of leading that way. First of all, I I just want to say, Anand made a very eloquent case. His book is fantastic. Everyone needs to read it. It's really important uh, to understand how the plutocracy and the wealthy are shaping policy and tilting society. I would disagree with him a little bit, though, on this issue of Amazon. I think we're in kind of a strange time now where because a rich person suggests something, it must be bad. And no matter what that thing is, and I I feel like things have become so political slash emotional about wealth that this was actually, on paper, economically, a very good deal. I'll give you $3 billion, you give me $25, $27 billion back in terms of tax revenue. That seems to me pretty cut and dry. I wonder if it was Apple or another company that didn't have the richest man at the top, whether this would have gone under the radar, unnoticed, and accepted. And, you know, we have incentives for businesses every single day to come to New York and to come to New York City. This was at a scale and visibility beyond all the others. But I just think the wealth of Jeff Bezos being the richest man, Amazon being the biggest company, obscured people's perception of this and created so much emotion that I think it obscured what, what seemed like sound economics to, to bring them here. Anand, what about that? 
because um, it, it's true, deals get done all the time. You're just talking about the race to the bottom. It's not inside any one municipality's power to stop that. Isn't the deal good on paper? Might it have gone through if it were Apple and not Amazon? First of all, some of those companies, I think Google's an example in a, in a recent expansion that it Didn't made. Ask for, don't ask uh, for these right, incentives, yeah, yeah. right? So actually part of having that kind of money is having the self-confidence to not beg for welfare as the richest man in the world, right? So, so let's just start there. Um, I, I, look, I, I think it is possible that in the long run, in a deal like this, the city ends up with more money than it's spent. That's possible. By the way, there's often not, not enough teeth on those kinds of things. There's often the city does a lot up front, and if they walk away or they change their mind or conditions change. So, that, so there's a whole issue around enforcement. But look, let's stipulate that it's a good deal that, that in the sense that it would pay for itself. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that's the only possible use of that money, right? And I think we have to ask ourselves, a company that's coming in and dictating from day one that collective bargaining is not possible. Well, I'm sorry, but there's 8 million people here who, to whom the city belongs who have a right to decide the kind of public policies they want. And I think this is, I mean, this is a union town. It's been a union town for a long time. All of that's true. I, I would just say there's a secondary impact of this, which we have yet to see, but I think it's going to be stronger than any of us, of us expect, which is that, you know, New York is suffering from these changes in the federal regulations around salt deductions. A lot of high net worth people, high income earners who pay for the top 1% pays 40% of the taxes in New York. There is a revenue shortfall in New York that is worse, that is bad and getting worse. Cuomo mentioned that it's partly because we have so many wealthy, affluent New Yorkers moving to Florida. If we now have a sign up that says, you know what, we're not really open for business when it comes to providing incentives, especially if you're a highly visible company or your founder happens to be wealthy, that I think could have damaging effects for the city and the state long term. I'll tell you, this city's been around a long time. It's... Um, it's always been an extraordinary city. Yeah. Were and you here in the 70s? In I was, in, the I was, 70s I was in New York in the 70s. And, and <laughs> yeah, there, if, you, if you remember New York in the 70s, you know that this city um, has, has had some pretty dark days. I understand that. It's but, possible. But, but, but you may want to listen to what I'm, I'm, I'm saying. I mean, I, I, was, I, was all, I was merely potential in the 70s. Um, but the, the fact is this city's been here for hundreds of years. And it has survived varying levels of plutocracy. Um, and I don't think anybody would argue that this city is really inhospitable to rich people right now. In fact, this city has levels of hunger, of homelessness, of, of poverty, of, of people just above poverty that are actually truly appalling given the wealth here. Mm -hmm. If you really think that of those two issues, the inhospitability of rich people is more of a problem, I, I think you've got to get out more. I, I, I spend a lot, I, I have met many of those people at many fancy cocktail parties in New York who tell you how they scheme and cheat. They tell you to pretend to live in Florida, to keep their easy pass accounts under showing 180 days. There was a New Yorker piece about a hedge fund billionaire who parked on a bridge before entering New York City at 1130 at night so it wouldn't count as two. So would New York two, be better? Can, can, I, can I finish my point? Yep. To, to, to not get two days on the calendar. Look, the cities, states, nations, they set the rules, right? They set the rules. And I think people need to be free to decide where they want to live in those places. And, and, and I think, I actually am confident that this city is so damn amazing 
that it can actually set some rules that ask these people to kick in a little bit more for the extraordinary privilege of living and working and doing business here. And I have a feeling that the Michael Bloombergs and even the Jeff Bezoses one day are going to decide that it's worth being here, even if it's a little more expensive. And look, if they want to go to Singapore, if they want to go to Singapore, I will give them a couple of restaurant recommendations. <laughs> They've got a few places. Many of them have multiple locations that they can go to. We'll be fine with that. Robert Frank, jump in. Well, no, I, I was just going to wonder, ask Anand, would New York be better if the, all the billionaires were gone? If you got rid of anyone worth $500 million or more, would New York be a better place? Is that what you're suggesting? It would be better if it had the policies that led to there being fewer billionaires and those bil- billionaires having fewer billions, which means if you had higher wages. So the museums that get so much from the wealthy, all the parks that get so much from the wealthy, all the projects that philanthropically go to the city, you think would be better without those donors? That we would be better because we wouldn't rely on that funding model. Right now, we right. rely on an entire system and an ecosystem that asks people, tells people to make as much money as possible in the most extreme ways as possible. In particular, by paying people as little as they can get away with, underpaying, dynamic scheduling, those kinds of things. Then paying as little taxes as possible, double Dutch with an Irish sandwich, little Bermuda, little Cayman Islands. Um, avoid lobbying for policies in Washington that protect their advantages, avoid antitrust scrutiny, whatever, whatever, right? So then you make more money than you would have made if you didn't do those just three things I described. And now, having made more money than you'd make without that, um, and by the way, now with the government having less money than it would have without that, mm. you step in and you, and you, and you patronize the arts. You're, you're the Sackler arguing. family right. are amazing patrons of the arts in New York. Unfortunately, they're also among the co-authors of the Great American Opioid Crisis. Would I, would I rather the they didn't use arts patronage right. to launder their reputation and, and, and help? You've, you've written loop. about this. Right. You're, you're arguing that the billionaires in part got to be billionaires by underpaying their workforce because they were allowed to. And then they want to come into a city, set up a new location, and get essentially underpay again into the services of the city for the privilege of having them uh, set up there. It's an interesting. I want to read some of the uh, feedback on this so far. Uh, the Jeet says even a legitimate. Oh uh, wait, no, that that's old. Uh, unions chased out of uh, ch- chased Amazon out of NYC. Perhaps the leaders were certainly up saying that, but union households actually favored this deal by, I believe, 53%, according to um, the, uh, the survey. Jason Cannon says federal um, wise seems to be a New York-centric issue. I think Anand is arguing that New York alone can't fight this fight. And then uh, another viewer says, I think it's a right move. It should go to a city that needs to rebuild. Amazon, of course, says they're not going to open up this search again. They're going to stick with the locations they've got. This isn't just a New York City issue. Um, In San Francisco, in Seattle, there have been measures uh, put up where companies of a certain size would have to pay a certain amount of their revenue toward homeless services. Some big companies have fought that. In San Jose right now, where I used to live, Google's looking to move in, some other companies looking to set up. Some of the residents there are saying, oh, wait a second, especially renters, we're worried about what that's going to do to the cost of living. It's too hard unless you are a software engineer to even afford to live here. Is there a bigger current than just New York City or even New York, San Francisco, and Seattle about the deal 
the social contract between companies and people who live in these cities. You framed it absolutely right. Look, let me say something that I think many, many of your viewers will connect with in their own lives and people in their lives. If you look at your and my lifetime, I don't think you can doubt that this has been an extraordinary age for innovation. You take the word innovation, right? I don't think we can complain that our, our time has, has been shortchanged on that front. Maybe your and my lifetime is the most innovative period in history. Arguably. Right? Um, if you take a second word, which is progress, which is most people's lives getting better, I think we have a lot more problems. Mm. And if you drive around this country, or if you drive, well, around this city, and frankly, certainly if you drive an hour outside of this city or many of the major cities, and you start asking people, in this amazing age of innovation and new stuff, do you feel a similar amount of progress? Has your life gotten measurably better? Is your, are, are you paid more? Can you, buy, can you buy a better livelihood for yourself? Is your social mobility up? Is your kid's education improved? And people will say, no, I, I have the reporting and the notebooks and the tapes to prove it. And so the question is, what is it that has allowed an age so rich in innovation to be so miserly in progress? And the answer, I think, is that the job of a society, of a, of a government in particular, and of a system, is a progress machine. America, a successful society, is a progress machine. It is supposed to take in innovation coming in one side and spit out progress. And that broad progress is what you're saying. Broad because progress for everybody. For people over a certain level, there right. has been That's a not lot how I pro define progress. Millionaires have become billionaires, et cetera. And I want to bring Robert Frank in here, too, because I'm giving him a little short shrift. Robert, uh, we, we had uh, <clears throat> Sir Richard Branson on this morning talking about, oh, I feel like billionaires should pay more taxes. I feel like he framed that in an interesting way, though. He argued that billionaires should be the ones pouring money into the sorts of innovations that benefit all society. But in a way, like, if they can't do that, if they don't do that, well, then they deserve to be taxed more. What's your take on how the very richest are approaching this issue, this argument, which many of them say that they see, of capitalism alone not being moral in and of itself? Bono said this. It, it needs morality applied to it. There, there, there needs to be uh, more of an effect of more people getting uh, lifted up. What do they say? Well, I think there's been a huge shift. So let's say 15 years ago when I started covering the wealthy, there was a sense that inequality was an attack on them. It wasn't real. Um, these discussions about the wealth gap were all sort of, you know, retreads of socialism. And it was just the politics of envy. Fast forward to the crisis. And I think uh, the, the more of the left-leaning millionaires and billionaires started to see that these inequities were too big to ignore that it wasn't so much they themselves as individuals were the problem, but they, they had the ability to solve it either through paying more taxes, which many of them were willing to do, or through their philanthropy. Today, I think we're in this new political uh, landscape where even the more conservative wealthy are talking about inequality and the need to solve it, but they would say that has to be done through government spending more effectively on the, the root causes of the problem. So uh, they would say we need to fund education better. We need to fund the infrastructure better. We need to fund the healthcare system better. We need to fund social programs uh, that reward work and, and provide more clear incentives for people. So I think there's, there's a broad consensus among the wealthy that this inequality issue is bad and getting worse. 
And I think, as Paul Tudor Jones said on our air the other day, one of the richest hedge fund billionaires saying it could lead to social unrest. So there's an aspect of self-preservation now when the wealthy <laughs> talk about inequality. And I think, but their solutions either go toward philanthropy, i.e., I'm going to do it myself because I can do it better than government, or government needs to be more effective in addressing the problems. But they all agree it's a problem and that the wealthy can't survive. We all remember the French, or we don't remember it, but in the back of their minds, the French Revolution is the solution to extreme inequality. Anand, you, you went to a dinner party recently where th this issue of, uh, of inequality came up. What was your takeaway from that? You had a very entertaining tweet storm uh, about it and, and providing lots of insights, which I saw, by the way, before I even had this topic in mind for Fort Knox. I went to a dinner to, to, uh, for a good cause to try to raise money for threatened writers around the world. Um, I was filling in for uh, a writer who uh, kind of became disgraced that week because of a story in The New Yorker that exposed him as a kind of serial liar. So I stepped in at the last minute to try to help raise money for these writers. And, uh, you know, the donors didn't like uh, the kind of message that I was giving. And, you know... They're rich New York donors, so they're probably not going to like uh, the message. And I think, you know, it, uh, someone sort of jokingly raised knives at me. It got testy. I walked out. But what was important in that moment for me was, and I think Robert's point is, is very right about a shifting understanding among these people, even among the most kind of calcified ones, that, that we're in a moment right now that they need to respond to. But I think... What I have also realized that night at dinner, but also just through my reporting on the book, is that these wealthy and powerful people can't be in charge of the effort to reform the status quo from which they have benefited, mm. right? You can't put arsonists in charge of the firefighting brigade, right? So it's great that they recognize that we live in a time of, of inequality and anger and that there's a desire for change. That's great. But I think Robert's absolutely right that most of how they propose to solve this is through philanthropy. They don't like government because that means taxes. So what's funny about that is they're happy to spend $3 billion when they're directing it. It's their program, their names on it, they're on the board of it, they're shaping the initiative. They get to go on trips to inspect their work. They get to go to Africa and wear the Africa bracelets that all these rich guys wear. But if you talk about it as taxes, where we're taking that money through democratic action, and we're actually building shared public institutions to solve these problems collectively. They don't like that, right? Because they like to feel that they're in charge of changing the world. And yeah. my contention is when the rich and powerful take charge of changing the world, they change change and they water down change and they defang change and we get the kind of change we can't believe in. I so would just say, just Frank, because one, one last we thing. We have I'm... a billionaire who's trying, at least he says, <clears throat> To get involved in the political process, and you know Howard Schultz of, of Starbucks, um, but he's getting a lot of criticism he needs to try for a that harder. As, as well. He's he's been a little ham-handed, ham, uh, some would argue, in his approach to that. But do, do you agree uh, with that? How would you frame what, what, what I, the billionaires? I, I just to think do? we're at a time when it's too easy to just call the wealthy the wealthy, or billionaires billionaires, and therefore they all share the same attributes because of their. The, the number of zeros that they have in their net worth. And I think the wealthy have never been a more diverse group in terms of every measurement, whether it's demographics, whether it's age, whether it's ethnicity, whether it's the sources of their wealth. And so just because someone 
has been successful and, and made a lot of money doesn't mean they have bad ideas, doesn't mean they may not have good solutions, doesn't mean they shouldn't be involved in the process. And we all have opinions about what the right solutions are to any of these problems. But just because someone's wealthy doesn't mean they should be written off immediately as the arsonist in the firebiting brigade. I just think to, to call the wealthy the wealthy and label them that way and therefore dismiss everything they might say as pure self-interest, um, th then, that, then you just haven't really understood the wealthy enough. Well, I guess I'll work harder on spending three years reporting a book about it. Well, Robert has also written a book about a similar two, issue. Uh, two over two, 15 years, okay, but that's yes, okay. Two books over but 15 years. No, I, I, I just want to say, Anand's book, is, Anand's book is fantastic. Everyone should buy it and read it. Uh, it really is the best book on the subject that's been written in, in, in the past couple of years. So I appreciate that. And I, and I will tell you, you know, in public, Bill Gates was asked about my book in Davos. He endorsed the book last year. He insinuated I was a communist when he was asked about it this year. <laughs> you know, Tony Blair pushed back against it. But I will tell you, in private, I have a lot of conversations with these people, and it's very different from what they say in public. They understand something has shifted. I think a lot of them understand that they are standing on top of an indefensible mountain. They're not sure how to get down. Um, and, and Robert's right that this is not a monolithic group. To be honest, it's a way whiter male group than the country is, so it's, it's a little monolithic. Uh, if you look at some of the richest people in the country. But yeah, there's sure there's some diversity. And I don't mean to say they're all the same. The Kochs are very different from Mark Zuckerberg. But my only point is the, the equations that have allowed so much innovation to benefit so few people is a system that benefits that class equally, whether you're a liberal member of that class or a conservative member of that it class. It is hard. And the indeed. tax avoidance strategies yeah. that they use are used by the liberals in that group as well as the conservatives. <laughs> I know a lot of Democrats, far left Democrats in that cohort. I guarantee you they set up the same trusts for their kids, the same Bermuda accounts as any of the right wing people. In that it's hard group. to argue against your own wallet. Uh, some try to do it. Once again, Winners Take All is the book by Anand Richistan. Uh, by Robert Frank. I recommend you check that out as well. One of the core issues, one of the core challenges here, I, I must say the way I see it, is just that problem of the masses coalescing around a single idea. I mean, it it's so easy to pick off multiple interests. Um, we'll see if democracy can win and capitalism in the end. Once again, this has been Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. Thank you for being with us. See you next time. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. Subscribe wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out the reviews on iTunes. Leave me a note. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox series on LinkedIn. That's brand new and a great way to keep up with the trends I'm seeing both on this Fort Knox show and in my other work on CNBC. That's also the absolute best way to be in touch with me. Leave a comment on the series. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube, F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com slash YouTube. Matter of fact, you can go to YouTube now and see video of these conversations. Or you can go to the CNBC apps on Apple TV or Amazon Fire TV and find Fort Knox in the featured area. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or FortKnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.